0: We wanted to build spaceships that could matter, to create a transportation infrastructure for for the industry, for humanity, you know?
1: Welcome to Third Angle, where we find ourselves in the mission control center of a major space operation. I'm your host, Paul Hames, from industrial software company PTC. In this podcast, we share the moments where digital transforms physical and meet the brilliant minds behind some of the most innovative products around the world, each powered by PTC technology. Whether it's improving the way we navigate the world through GPS or making it possible to pay for our groceries from anywhere in the world, satellites have become an essential part of keeping our modern lives running. But up until fairly recently, launching satellites into space was a bit like throwing a stick into a river and waiting for the current to take it on its natural course. That is to say, it wasn't very accurate. That was until ION, a satellite carrier which solves the problem by delivering satellites exactly where they need to be, putting them into the correct orbit faster and more efficiently than ever before. And it's an innovation from space logistics company d a customer of PTC's Italian partner, Deda Group Business Solutions. And it means satellites can begin their essential work in a matter of days instead of months. Lorenzo Ferrario is d CTO, an employee number one. He helped to invent and design ION, and our reporter, Jonathan Zenti, met him at the company's HQ in Italy.
0: Okay, so this is our mission control center basically the bridge of our spaceship. The desks, as you can see, are organized as uh, the bridge of the Enterprise. What you can see on, on, the, on the wall are two big screens uh, where all the orbits of our carriers is projected, where you can see in real time the position uh, in space of our six flying uh, spacecraft and the status uh, of all of them. And indeed here is where all the critical operations are executed, like first acquisition of signal after launch, payload release, technically, or critical operations in, in, during the mission. The positions here, just uh, on my back, this is called the captain position, is where the director of the orchestra sits. Uh, here in, in the front there is operations, which is managing the operations of the spacecraft, so basically uh, sending and receiving commands and especially everything that is related to, to attitude. Uh, flight control, which is managing, uh, again, telecommands and telecommand, is like the helm of the ship. Uh, engineering and, uh, and then communication, of course they do what they say they do. Is engineering is for monitoring the status of the, uh, of the spacecraft and communication is to monitor the status of the ground segment, because satellite is just as good as your link to it. So it's very important to monitor in real time what happens on, on the stations, so on the antennas that we have on the ground. The orbit started in 2011, so it's 11 years this year. I mean, it's, it's, I can say it now. It was crazy at the time, so but now it's I, I can say it. So we, we wanted to build spaceships that could matter. So we wanted to do to build a logistics infrastructure. We wanted to create a transportation infrastructure for for the industry for humanity, you know, uh, in the sense uh, because we believe that well transportation, so building roads. Is uh, this, the first thing that you need to do if you want to expand. So we started from there. We, that was the, the founding idea. So um, Ion uh, is our full name is Ion Satellite Carrier. Is a very special spacecraft. I don't like to call it a satellite because a satellite is, uh, is something that you know flies on an orbit, stays on that orbit for the whole life, and then is removed. While ION is designed not to do that, it's designed to move, it's designed to be an agile spacecraft that goes, uh, it's a transportation mean. So um, you can imagine it as a last-mile delivery service that is taken to orbit by big rockets, sometimes even multiple IONs at a time, like is going to happen in the next mission. ION is loaded with the customers, which are by themselves the satellites or other payloads. And um, by using its own propulsive means, once in orbit, Ion moves from orbit to orbit, releasing and delivering, in the end, our customers, which again, are satellites uh, and other payloads to where they have to go. So we are uh, in the Orbit's clean room. Is basically where uh, we like to say the magic happens. So where we turn bare metal into into spacecraft. Um, what we are doing right now is we are dressing up. So we are dressing up with coats, hair hair nets, beard nets, and shoe covers to get inside because inside the air is very clean. Uh, we don't want any dust to deposit on optics, or to deposit on a harder components or actuators mechanisms. And so the air is maintained uh, clean uh, in a clean and uh, temperature control and humidity control environment. It's very common in in the space industry, I would say it's pretty mandatory. So we're we're about to enter now. Okay, here we are. Okay, so this is uh, our our clean room. Uh, It's divided into sectors. It's been reorganized several times over the last few months to accommodate an ever-growing line of production. Right now we can accommodate um, 15 carriers per year as a rate of manufacturing. What you can see right now are three carriers in in manufacturing stages. Uh, Manufacturing is organized similarly to automotives, so without aisles and with the carriers, so the satellites, they move along the the production line to the various stages. And uh, once they have finished, they exit from that door which is called the airlock, and they are shipped away uh, to the launch site. At the moment we have t- said three, manufact- three iron in manufacturing here and uh, other two which have been uh, completed and now they are on their way to Cape Canaveral for a launch in the next few few weeks. Okay, if we move a little bit here on our left side, what you see here, these big bottles, shiny bottles. Um, these are the propellant tanks for that propulsion so one of the big uh, advantages and actually one of the selling point of our carrier is the capability of conducting orbital maneuvers so once it's in flight is released by the launcher it has its own propulsion system its own thrusters so little rockets that move up and they can move the satellite, our carrier, up and down and reach the final orbital destination of our customers. And, of course, you need in the fuel, right? You need the propellant. Actually you need much more oxidizer than fuel. And so what you see here is the tanks for, for the oxidizer and uh, on the other side you see the tanks for the fuel. <laughs> When, when it's launch day is always a little, little bit of a strange, uh, a strange day. Uh, generally, launches uh, happen at strange times, so most of the times they don't happen during work hours. So generally, a launch day goes like this: that you wake up, you go to work, you don't work all day because if you try to work but you don't, you can't. So you don't work all day. Uh, then, since m- at least all of, most of the launches that we did so far uh, happened uh, in um, during night a good number of people from the company stay in office. We go out for dinner together and then we meet for for the launch. And then, I mean, even if it's the sixth or fifth time you see a launch is always a little bit of a a stress because you can can imagine that you have your months or something, you know, when it's the first time, years of work that are placed on top of a barely controlled bomb that is barely exploding controllably in a continent far away and everything happens in 10 minutes, it's, it's a little bit of stress and I don't think you really can get used to it. I mean, I, I am not ashamed to say that I cried a few times. But then, uh, of course, then there are—it's like the team, you know, the, the soccer team at the day of the match. There is the operations team. Uh, they are for that day. They are focused completely, uh, like in a car in a zen state, uh, which they don't, they don't go to work. They just come for the launch time because they have to be uh, well rested, of course, and prepared to take over operations. Because what happens is that we we follow the streaming of the from the video that the launch provider give us. Uh, we follow the launch and what happens is at some point, a few minutes or sometimes even an hour after the, the takeoff, the liftoff, our carrier is, is released from the launcher. Uh, when that happens, the carrier turns on because the switches on the carrier uh, tell the computer that uh, the, the release has happened. So everything is turned on, comes to life. And so the satellite, uh, the first thing that it does is it, um, it looks for the sun because it, it's powered by, pan- uh, by solar panels, so sun is life. So it stops any kind of tumbling that was uh, uh, induced by the separation. And then after that, it starts calling ground. So it starts opening a, conne- a, a radio connection, a radio transmission, uh, which we call the beacon. So every few seconds it sends a, you know, uh, I'm here kind of message. And the first time that it passes over one of the hour station, which again maybe uh, minutes or sometimes even one hour after uh, after the launch, uh, you have again what is called the acquisition of signals, or AOS. That is the tens- tensest moment, and I have goosebumps just saying it. It's basically you have you can you can imagine that everybody that is at that time, which is generally night time, I don't know why, but it generally happens during night. Everybody that is in the office uh, goes there on the back of, uh, of the control center or just outside outside of the windows and the team is in the control center extremely focused especially on the com position because the com is where you see the spectrum uh, as recorded by, by the antennas and the only thing you can do at that moment is just wait uh, wait and see if uh, if the space gets cold on uh, and again boost goosebumps as soon as you as you get contact as soon as you recognize the signal the dance happens so you start sending commands you start receiving telemetry and at that point you verify what how the satellite is so if it's everything is well after a launch and you start what is called the commissioning of, of the spacecraft the commissioning is basically the beginning of life but again again even if you're if I'm, the mi8 launch still goes for me you're just telling it so. I mean you 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 realize that engineers can cry. So Well, the future of space uh, industry is um, is I would say very bright and it's very exciting. So we've seen things we have seen happening things that we never thought would have happened ever. I re- remember very clearly the day which I have been given a mathematical proof by doing a, a lecture at the university that landing a rocket was not possible or not convenient. And I remember very clearly the day in which uh, a certain company did land a rocket, uh, and now it became a routine. Uh, it's literally routine, landing a rocket vertically on a, on a ship, on a barge in, in the middle of the ocean, 600 kilometers away from the launch pad, so, which is crazy. All of these things were, were not... Uh, this is just one, but over the last... Uh, Three years, we launched more satellites than the last 30 years combined. So again, this was also something that was not thought possible. So um, it's very exciting. We are in a situation in which um, there is a, a lot of different solutions to the same problems. So it's also very exciting because you can have... Uh, it, this is where creativity matters. And so it's very exciting because you can literally see the effect of the choices that you make uh, not just on the products that the company makes but also on everybody else so how we design ION conditioned our competitors designed their own carriers and this in the end conditioned our constellations have been designed around that service and basically in the end conditioned a lot of you know the current landscape and everything started from uh, from a decision that we took in 2018 for example and we were like 20 people in 2018 so you can really really see the effect uh, not just on what we do but on what on everybody else in the world is doing so that's extremely exciting in terms of possibility i believe that we are in a stage of the space history in which we are transitioning from a phase of exploration which is which has been everything uh, that has been in, in in this industry since 57 to now into a phase of expansion in which we go to stay and now we don't go to come back and, and then go somewhere else. This is a huge step, because it means that the space is no longer seen as a, is a, a frontier of go, pick and come back, but it becomes a place where you can go and stay. So it becomes one of the environments of humanity, just like uh, sea, air and, and of course ground. So I really do believe and I'm really convinced that we are in, this, in the generation that will see life extending and standing outside Earth, that will see the rise of uh, basically the normalization of space. You know, we, will start, we will stop talking about space as we do right now and we will start talking about space as we do for aircraft, for example. When space will become boring, it will, be, it will mean that we are, we've done a good job.
1: That was Lorenzo Ferrario, CTO of DORBIT. Now, each of DORBIT's clients has different requirements, so its missions are never identical. To make sure they can adapt quickly to client requests, they need software which models the final product in a fast and efficient way. That's where PTC's 3D computer-aided design software, Creo, comes in. Let's find out more. Time to meet our expert, Brian Thompson, who heads up PTC's CAD division. So, Brian, we've discussed the merits of Creo in previous episodes, but can I ask that you give the listeners a quick reminder as to what Creo is and how it helps manufacturers in industry today? So, first of all, Creo is PTC's flagship
2: 3D CAD solution for the market. And I would say primarily the reason why customers started moving to 3D CAD 30 years ago is simply because... Until the invention of really scalable, commercial-ready 3D CAD, design engineers had to, for lack of a better term, imagine the third dimension of their designs. They were doing everything in 2D, and frankly, the level of additional comfort and confidence that design engineers get by being able to completely define their designs in full 3D is really hard to Underestimate. I mean, it, it is extremely valuable to have full confidence in your designs in 3D to make sure those designs can go together as the manufacturing team starts to assemble them to make the, make sure those designs are manufacturable as the manufacturing engineers decide how to apply, say, NC tool pass or injection molding processes to those parts. The fact that the model is fully defined in 3D gives rise to all of these other design checks, manufacturability checks, serviceability checks, uh, because you now can evaluate designs in ways that customers never could before. And so 3D CAD, the process of defining your designs in 3D is really fundamentally giving customers the full capability of evaluating that design from sort of every respect in the value chain, from every point of view in the value chain. And I think that is why 3D design is frankly stuck and is continuing to grow uh, remarkably in the world of you know, discrete manufacturing.
1: I certainly remember my early experience with 3D CAD with Pro Engineer as it was then, Creo as it is today, and it is that ability to to see what you're envisaging and know that this is exactly what's going to get manufactured. I still think that is one of the most powerful things. And Creo's ability to capture whatever it is you need to model, that I think again is one of its fundamental strengths. Now, we've heard Lorenzo talk about the time sensitivity of launch dates for deorbit so help me understand how does creo help them meet those tight deadlines what is it we're doing what is it they're doing to enable them to meet the deadlines
2: it's good that we started with a definition of 3d cad because frankly for deorbit they have a pretty significant challenge because first of all their assemblies are very large and the complexity of bringing together hundreds or maybe even thousands of parts into particular modules that then get stacked together into a larger assembly. Just that complexity is extremely difficult to do if you're trying to do all that in 2D. And it turns out that Creo is particularly adept at helping customers with visualizing and managing the development of very large assemblies. It's not just that Creo can say, open a large assembly quickly. Of course it can. But it's also that Creo helps design engineers get to their design context really efficiently. You know, Design engineers don't need the entire assembly up when they're working on one particular part of the assembly, but they do need to say, hey, here is the area of the design that I want to be working in right now, And Creo has great tools for helping design engineers efficiently tell our system, this is the area I want to work in. Please give me everything and all the detail that I need in this area so that I can get my work done effectively. And it understands how to keep all of that up to date, even though the design engineer is working in a very small part of the design at any one
1: time, right? So really, really powerful stuff working in large assemblies. Thanks to Brian and to Lorenzo for showing us around D-Orbit's headquarters. Please rate, review and subscribe to our bi-weekly Third Angle episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow PTC on LinkedIn and Twitter for future episodes. This is an 1860 production for PTC. Executive producer is Jackie Cook. Sound design and editing by Oli Guiu. Location recording by Jonathan Zenti and music by Rowan Bishop.